Now let's open our Bibles again to the book of Colossians as we continue our exposition of this wonderful epistle. And if for some reason you have been providentially hindered from being here over the last couple of Sundays, these past couple of texts that were preached, especially in chapter 1, verses 15 through 20, are crucial to understanding the book of Colossians. And so I would urge you to get online and to hear them, and also the one following that on reconciliation from last week. But in the verses before us today, Paul the Apostle actually opens his pastor's heart as a part of his argument against the false teaching that we find in the church at Colossae. Will you pray with me before we begin reading at chapter 1, verse 24? Let us pray. Our Father, we ask that the Holy Spirit will so work within our hearts that we will love Christ, that we will see Him on the page of Scripture, and that we will delight in Him. And that the Holy Spirit, who lives within every believer here, will so sanctify us and transform us and conform us to the image of Your Son, that we would hate more and more those things that are out of accord with Your nature and love those things that are in accord with Your nature. And Father, for those who may be with us today who are lost, who do not know Christ at all, we pray that You will draw them out of darkness into light, that they may trust in Your Son, Jesus Christ, who is the only Savior of sinners. And it is in His name that we pray. Amen. Chapter 1 of Colossians, beginning with verse 24 through chapter 2, verse 5. This is the Word of God. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you, to make the Word of God fully known. The mystery, hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to His saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that is powerfully working within me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Yesterday, Pastor McDonald and I were all day in a very lengthy presbytery meeting, and both of us had many opportunities to serve on the floor of our presbytery. On one occasion, one of the gentlemen that uh, I had responsibility to examine in theology, I also had the privilege of charging as a candidate before our presbytery. 
And I began my charge with words something like this. My dear brother, you will know intellectually, but you cannot yet know experientially how much joyful suffering awaits you in the ministry of the Word of God. Well, he still wants to be a minister, (laughs) but what I said to him is absolutely true. One of the old fellows that I read says, it is part of the equipment of every preacher that he enter the valley of the shadow of death. And here we find the Apostle Paul in this section unpacking something of his passionate pastoral heart for the people of God. And he does this as a part of his argument. Basically he is saying, my passionate preaching of the gospel, my longing for you, my prayer for you, my toil for the church should be an argument for you also to abstain from false teaching and to love Christ more. And so as he addresses the ministry of the Word... That ministry is to all of God's people, and so it has something to say to each of us here today. So as we unpack the text, let's first of all notice a ministry of joyful suffering. Joyful suffering. Now, we find that in verse 24 of chapter 1 when he says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. And it seems contradictory to us to speak of joyful afflictions. Paul rejoiced, however, in suffering. He was not happy because he suffered. But he rejoiced in God even though he suffered. When men were faithless, he rejoiced in God. Even as he is in prison, as he is as he writes this epistle, it was part of God's plan to bring glory to his name, and that is what our lives are all about, to bring glory to God. And in that he is joyful. Now that raises an interesting question. Have you and I learned to find joy in Christ no matter what comes in life. Did it ever occur to you that one of the reasons that those things come into your lives is so that you might become a rejoicer in Christ? In grace the Lord knocks out from under us all the props and we say, as we have read in the 73rd Psalm, whom have I in heaven but you and there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. I no longer desire these things of the earth that perish. I want you. I want communion with you. I long for you. That's the joy that Paul knew in the midst of his sufferings, and that's the joy that you and I should know as well. And young people, let me speak very pointedly to you. Wonderful things are coming in your lives, and hard things are coming in your lives. Are your minds and hearts and emotions and wills, and maybe most of all, are your imaginations captured for Jesus Christ? Will you be able to live in hard times consciously to the glory of God in the midst of sad and hard things with a real and genuine joy? The joy of delighting in Him. Are you learning as young Christians to find your delight in Christ? and to rejoice in him. Now the way he puts this in verse 24 is very confusing to some people. He says, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. And the language is admittedly almost incomprehensibly strong. 
You know, the typical Roman Catholic exegete takes this passage and he says what it means is that there are afflictions of Christ that went so far and then there is the merit of the saints that fill up what is lacking. Well, certainly Paul doesn't mean anything of the sort. That would contradict everything that the Bible teaches. It is finished, my friend. When Jesus went to the cross, his suffering for our sins was completely sufficient for the vilest sinner, no matter who he may be, who trusts in him. Hebrews 10.14, by the offering of himself, he hath forever perfected them that are sanctified. But the reason for this strong language, look at it again, filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. The reason for that strong language is union with Christ. Uh, What Paul is arguing here is that because of union with Christ, there is a relationship between Christ and the remainder of history until he returns and the suffering of his church. You will remember that when Saul was met by the risen Lord on the Damascus road that the Lord Jesus questioned to him was, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? You say, persecuting Christ? He was persecuting the church. That's the point here. That the sufferings of the church because of union with Christ are in a certain sense the sufferings of the Savior as well. By the way, That should really strike terror into the hearts of those who persecute the people of God and mistreat the believer in Jesus. Because persecution against the people of God is ultimately persecuting the Savior with whom we have union. And those who do not believe and repent who persecute the people of God and misuse the church have no idea what wrath awaits them. So Paul says, in effect, here it is my turn now to suffer. The sufferings of Christ were unique, but his sufferings do not mean that his people in this life will not suffer. And I too, says Paul, will now suffer for the sake of God's people. And basically he says, what an honor. What an honor to suffer for those for whom Christ gave his life. And it's true of us as well. Philippians 1.29, to you is given not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. Now what is the Lord doing in the midst of all of this suffering, in the church, in our lives, as Christians, in the fallenness of this world? What is the Lord doing? Well, he's growing his church, he's maturing his people, and he's drawing the character of Christ deeply within your heart. You know, I've used this illustration in Vespers, but I I don't think I have on a Sunday morning, but if I have, I'm repeating it. It's in Malachi chapter 3, when it speaks of the coming of Christ, it says, He is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, that they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. So the sanctifying work of Christ is described as the kind of thing that happens when silver or gold are purified. And years ago, in the 19th century, there were some ladies who were 
really pondering this and wanted to know what the Lord meant by this. And so they went to watch a refiner at work in the refiner's shop. And the refiner sat next to the crucible and he controlled the amount of heat that it not be too hot, that the process not be incomplete. And he continued the refining, the boiling, and the separating of the gold or silver from the dross. And he continued the process until he could look in the crucible and see clearly his own reflection. What is God doing? He's refining you. And why? So that he will see his own image reflected in your heart. Paul's talking about his ministry, and the second thing we see in this passage is a ministry of stewardship. And we find that in verse 25 of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone. So he says it's a stewardship. That's the word he uses. The word stewardship actually is the word from which we derive our term economy. And the reason for this is because household managers in the ancient world were given the responsibility for managing the economy of the household, the financial affairs. And Paul compares himself to a household manager, and he says, the ministry of the word that God has given to me is a sacred trust. And that ministry is a stewardship to make the Word of God fully known. Paul and all ministers are entrusted with the stewardship of proclaiming the Word. And now this Word is called by Paul the mystery that has been revealed. Now you'll remember from our time in Ephesians together, he made a big issue of this mystery. Ephesians 3.9, the stewardship of the mystery hidden from ages in God. Romans 16.25, the mystery kept in silence during the eternal ages. And now he's opposing these Gnostic heretics who use this term mystery. And he's saying, no, 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 don't you see? The true mystery is not found in your mystical philosophy. The true mystery has been revealed and it is found in Christ. And what is that mystery? It is the revelation that Gentiles are now included on equal footing with Jews in the covenant and that was once hidden but now has been made known. So that Jew and Gentile are included in God's kingdom with no distinction and this is now manifested and universally proclaimed. So he is saying, I'm preaching, this is my stewardship to make known this mystery to you, to you God has made known the wealth, the riches of his glory among the Gentiles. So that the gospel is not for Jews only, the gospel is not confined to a few elite such as the Gnostic heretics. The gospel has come and it has broken down every barrier. The barrier between God and man and man and God. 
so that whatever your race, whatever your background, whatever your economic condition, whatever your talents or gifts, nationality, or whether you are male or female, the gospel flames out as a brilliant light in the world to be preached to every creature. And this union with Christ is expressed. Christ not only is the one with whom you Gentiles are in union, but he expresses this union in this wonderful way by saying, Christ in you, the hope of glory. This union with Christ is expressed very personally because the mystery is not simply a concept The mystery revealed is Christ himself. This union is spiritual and vital. It is your life and it is indissoluble. It is the promise that reaches all the way to the consummation of all things to your resurrection and glorification. So Paul's language in this text is very complex, but the meaning is profound. Let me recap it for you. There was a mystery, once hidden, now revealed. Gentile inclusion is the essence of that revelation. All barriers are removed. This gospel is to be proclaimed to all. The content of the mystery is Christ himself. And this Christ dwells in you. And this, he says, is your hope. Your hope, the hope of glory. And that points you to the future. And this means that nothing, no one, can remove that hope that belongs to you that extends all the way to the day when Christ comes again and you enter into your promised inheritance, which Peter says is kept for you and you are kept for it, which is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. No matter what you are facing, Christian, no matter how hard your life may be, No matter how at present you may feel the weight of the world, the greater weight of glory Christ in you has given to you a certain future because you share in everything that Christ has accomplished in his death and resurrection. And because he died for you, because he rose for you, because he indwells you. My friend, if you are indwelt by Christ the risen Lord, through His Holy Spirit, you are indwelt forever. Nothing will take Christ out of you and nothing will take you out of Christ. This mystery is not hidden but revealed to all who receive it by faith. If you are a Christian, Christ indwells you and He has promised you a certain future. That's what hope means. And that leads us thirdly then to see Paul speak of ministry with a goal. Ministry with a goal. And the goal is found in verses 28 and 29 of chapter 1. Look at it. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this, he says, I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. So him we proclaim, not some Gnostic philosophy for a few, but the person of Christ indiscriminately to every man, admonishing every man, teaching every man in all wisdom. Paul reproves and he instructs and he calls to repentance in order that the believer may be mature, and he does that with all wisdom. And what's the goal? He tells us the goal here. 
the goal of all of this toil and struggle and study and preaching and teaching and constantly doing it and never stopping. The goal, he says, is that every one of you may be presented perfect in Christ. So Paul ministers with the day of judgment in his mind. He knows that this present ministry is maturing people to the day when they will stand in absolute and complete maturity before the Lord. So what does this say to me? It says this, that when I look over this congregation on any given Sunday morning, I see some people that probably are lost, and that breaks my heart. I see others who are saved, who are being saved, and who will be saved. And the Lord has ordained the ministry of the Word in His church as the chief means for bringing you step by step by step by step all the way to glory. And so the bulk of my time, and Jeff as well, is spent on our knees in prayer, studying the Word, preparing to bring the riches of the Gospel to you week after week in various settings and at various times. I'm just a clay pot. A crack pot at that. (laughs) But somehow or other, the the Lord has called me to this great task of out of this broken, decaying clay pot pouring on you the riches of the wisdom of the knowledge, of the fullness of who Christ is and what is revealed in His Word. That's what Paul says his ministry is about. That's what my ministry is about. I find it to be absolutely astounding. And where do you get the energy for it? Verse 29, For this I toil, struggling with all His energy that He powerfully works within me. A.T. Robertson made the statement, one of the chief discouragements of every preacher is the lack of growth and dullness of understanding on the part of those who should be able to grasp great spiritual truths who have to be given milk instead of solid food and sometimes skim milk at that. But Paul toils on. Let me say the opposite is also true, that the greatest encouragement to the minister is to see the Holy Spirit as opening hearts, changing minds, bringing faith, bringing repentance, and people are getting it. Which is why I'm encouraged with the youth of this church, by the way. Because by and large, they're getting it. So even through weariness, Paul just keeps on, and the minister must keep on, The energy comes, well, Paul says in Philippians, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And I remember reading, maybe not the exact words come to mind, but I remember Susanna Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon's wife, talking about her husband. She wrote a lot about him. She helped to finish his autobiography. And you know, Charles Spurgeon was sick and ill in a variety of ways all of his life, and it just got worse and worse. Do I remember he died at age 57, I think? So I've outlived him just a bit. And he was a sick man, and he had gout 
very, very painful gout, which in that day couldn't be treated well at all. And um, she said, I, I would see him sick and ill, and he would come to preach. And then he would stand, and he would just hobble to the sacred desk. And then he would begin to preach and call sinners to Christ. And it would all go away. <laughs> he, would, he would preach Christ. He would forget that he had gout. He would forget his pain. He would forget his sorrow. He was just wrapped up in the glory of what it means that Christ is the Savior of sinners. That's where the strength comes from, my friend. The Lord energizing the minister to preach the Word. And that same energy is there for you too. We confess it every Sunday. I believe in the Holy Spirit. So how often I come... As Mr. Spurgeon did, he would climb the steps to where the pulpit was and he would say, I believe in the Holy Ghost, I believe in the Holy Ghost, I believe in the Holy Ghost. And often I come here, and you don't hear it, but I'm saying to myself, I believe in the Holy Spirit. To do what I can't do, I can't open a heart, change a heart. Sometimes I come sick too, I'm not trying to focus on myself. The point is, it's the Holy Spirit, isn't it? It's work through His Word. Well, in some ways we've come full circle as we find a final thing he says about his ministry. This is the fourth point that he brings to the Colossians. He says, my ministry is an agonizing ministry. It's just agony. Joyful agony, but it's agony. And so in chapter 2, let's read these first three verses again. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the, the riches of full assurance and of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now, had I been translating from the Greek New Testament, I would have translated that word struggle in verse 2 as agony. That would have been a fair and reasonable and probably better translation. Paul agonizes for the church. As the church at Colossae is in danger, Paul's big pastoral heart beats to save them from error, to grow them, to mature them, and he just can't resist saying to them, look, I'm I'm toiling for you, I'm in agony of heart for you. Hope you don't mind hearing A.T. Robertson again. Paul not simply is not ashamed of his personal passion, but he's anxious for them to know something of it. There are two extremes for the preacher. Listen, two extremes for the preacher. One is icy indifference, the other is frothy personalities. The first, icy indifference, is ineffective. The second, frothy personalities, is disgusting. But here's Paul, genius, you can't read his epistles without seeing the man was an absolute genius, brilliant intellect, and the biggest pastoral heart, bringing all that he knows about God and his word and Christ and his truth to bear upon the lives of those to whom he preaches and writes. And so he agonizes that their hearts be encouraged. It says he agonizes that being knit in love, that they might reach all the riches of full assurance and understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery in Christ, and that knowledge that they need 
Paul says is hidden in Christ, not in some mystical experience of the Gnostics. It's hidden in Christ, verse 3 of chapter 2, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now listen, just pause over those words, in whom, that is in Christ, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I read an article just recently, frankly I just remembered it late last night, but I read an article recently about some metal detectors, you know guys that go out with metal detectors looking for things? And um, they uncovered somewhere in England, don't remember where, somewhere in England, they uncovered what is the greatest treasure trove of Anglo-Saxon coins ever to have been discovered in one place. That's thrilling to me. (laughs) That's my kind of story. That's exciting. If I remember correctly, preliminarily valued at 1.3 million pounds. But you know, it's a treasure trove, but it's, it's exhaustible, even though it's a lot. Paul says, Christ in him is all wisdom, all knowledge. And he's the great treasure box. You open that treasure box of Christ. Do you need wisdom? You find it there. Do you need knowledge? You find it in him. And you open the treasure box, and the great thing about the treasure box is there's no bottom. Because his knowledge, his wisdom that he offers to his people is as inexhaustible as is his person. So why aren't we going to him? Why aren't we trusting him? Why aren't we asking him? Why aren't we depending on him? And it's really beautiful what Paul says. And he says, you know, part of the agony of ministry is concern for the insidious spread of false teaching. And so he says in chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. Notice he says plausible, okay? For though I'm absent in the body, yet I'm with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. And he says, look, what you're hearing sounds good, sounds plausible. And many things you will hear from the various heresies that are abounding because we haven't learned the Bible and we haven't learned from church history and they're still out there. They really sound plausible. And so I remind you for the umpteenth time. At least this is the way rat poison used to work. I don't know, maybe they have green rat poison now and it doesn't kill rats. And I don't know. Rat poison used to be 99% good old-fashioned cornmeal. And it was the 1% arsenic that killed the rat. So it sounds plausible, sounds good, but beware of the arsenic, the 1% that kills the rat. And Paul's deep personal concern is expressed when he says, For though I'm absent in body, yet I'm with you in spirit. 
And Paul is confident, rejoicing to see your good order and firmness of your faith in Christ. You see that in verse 5? And it's a military metaphor. He says you're still forming one solid front against the enemy, one solid phalanx against the enemy. Okay, don't give in to these heretics. Keep it up. One solid front. Don't, Don't let the ranks be broken. And so Covenant Presbyterian Church, continue in the battle. Believe the truth. Don't let your guard down. Keep the front unbroken. Keep moving. W.R. Nicholson said, Love never compromises the truth. It is compassionate to the errorist, but it gives no allowance to error. And Paul is so passionate about these things and so cares for the church and truth that he's writing to people with passion that he had never even met. It says so in verse 1 of chapter 2. They don't know him, he doesn't know them. But he loves the church. Do you, by the way? Do you love Christ? Do you love his people? Do you love his church? Well, there's a lot here, and it deserves additional reflection for our own settings and our own lives. Don't you agree? So you're going to do that, right? But let me just focus for a few moments as we close on this theme of affliction and suffering. And if I were preaching to ministers, I would really focus on ministerial suffering. Let me just say this as regards ministers. Brethren, pray for us. (laughs) Pray for Jeff. Pray for me. Pray for our interns. Pray for those who will enter the ministry. Pray for Christopher. Pray for us. Pray that your ministers will be willing to bear the cross, and surely the evil one is diabolically wise to harass with temptation the leaders foremost. And pray that we can bear the cross and endure the pain with joyful spirits, not reluctantly, but following the captain of our souls. Now, you, what about your place under your minister's ministry? The minister preaches the word that you might be saved, and by that being saved, go all the way to glory, grow and persevere in the faith. And any Christian may be said, any Christian may be said, to fill up that which remains of the sufferings of Christ when we bear patiently afflictions to the glory of God. And among the many encouragements that I would give you, let me give you 2 Timothy 2, 11 and 12. This is a faithful saying... If we be dead with Christ, we shall also live with him. If we suffer with him, we shall also reign together with him. And the father of the church made the statement, The more sorely I am borne down by present evils, the more assuredly do I anticipate future joys. And so I call upon you to anticipate those future joys when the world is bearing down on you. That's normal Christian living in this present evil age. So whatever your circumstances, because Christ is in you the hope of glory, whatever your circumstances, you have the privilege of the indwelling Christ and the certain hope of glory in the future. So what is that hope? 
the hope that is in you. What is that hope? It is the certain hope of Christ's coming. It is the hope that your body sown in corruption will be raised in incorruption. The certain hope of being like Christ and without sin when he comes again. The certain hope that all disordered relationships will be righted. That all that is disordered by sin will be ordered in righteousness. That we will worship the Lamb before the throne as the elders fall down in worship, crying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain by your blood. You ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And the hope that there will be a new heaven and a new earth, and that every tear will be wiped from our eyes And death shall be no more, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, because the former things have passed away. That's the hope that indwells every believer. The seed of this promise that awaits the full flowering is already in your hearts, Christian, because Christ is in you, the hope of Glory. And God's people said, Amen. Amen.